on the Legal Economic Nexus podcast. Michigan State University institutional economists Eric Scorzoni and Sarah Klammer explore the work of heterodox and institutional economists. Institutional approaches to economics have a long history going back over a century, but are becoming even more prevalent since the trauma of the Great Recession, global financial crisis, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. We will be interviewing current thinkers from the fields of economics and the law to gain insights into important new research, approaches, and tools to understand the economy. Welcome to the Legal Economic Nexus podcast. This is episode two of season two. Sarah, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you, Eric? Very good. We're coming to you on November 9th, 2022 from the campus of Michigan State University on a beautiful November day. Today, we have James Galbraith with us from the University of Texas. How are you today? I'm all right. Thanks very much. Great. So we'll go ahead and get started. We're start talking here the day after the midterm elections in the United States. So as we sit here in November after this election, the U.S. Federal Reserve is still trying to engineer some kind of economic slowdown to address high inflation. You've written a lot about some of the flaws in U.S. anti-inflation policy. Can you talk about where you think we stand on these issues today? Well, the first thing I would say is that I would take exception to two things you've just said, okay. uh, which is that, that this is basically that this is an anti-inflation policy. It is described as an anti-inflation policy, but uh, it is, in fact, simply a policy of raising interest rates. Um, and raising interest rates is not a policy that is per se uh, effective policy against inflation, if indeed what we are experiencing right now falls under the you know the under the category that we would normally use to with the word inflation that's another question so what are we experiencing we're experiencing above all a series of uh, disruptions to the previously normal pattern of supply this was first of all the most important one it was in energy and there's a certain amount in transportation and then in some advanced technology and some other an- ancillary activities this is the fundamental cause of what Uh, we are experiencing. In order to deal with that, we would have to deal with those specific issues. That requires an investment program by and large, if in fact the resources are available, which is another question. High interest rates get in the way of doing that, and they add to the costs of ordinary businesses. So while ultimately down the road, they may disrupt economic activity by basically discouraging demand of one kind or another, construction in the first instance, and then household consumption. That's going to take some time to materialize, I think. In the meantime, what we have is a series of cost pressures, which may or may not be alleviated according to the course of events. So what we're looking at here is a habitual response by the central bank on whom a lot of political pressure has been dumped and which is very congenial, by the way, to the fact to the conservative forces and the political forces because uh, Democrat is in the White House and rising interest rates hurts the popularity of the incumbent. So those things are, and falling stock prices and so forth, hurt the popularity of the incumbent. So that's also going on there. But uh, to call this an anti-inflation policy or a proper policy to deal with the specific cost issues that we're facing uh, is, I think, right from the off the bat, uh, not the characterization of the issue I would use. Long answer to a short question. 
No, that's okay. That's good. So as a follow-up, what do you think about, there's some legal scholars, some economists who have talked about the issue of industrial pricing power, or whatever term you want to use that, you know, corporations are using their power to raise prices excessively. Do you think that's something that is happening? Do you agree with those kinds of ways of thinking? It's clearly happening. Uh, and and uh, the, the again, the, the most important sector in which this is originating is the energy sector. Uh, and you're seeing what you see there basically is, I, I think, a couple of things. Uh, one is that in the pandemic, when prices were very low uh, and wells were being capped in the in the Permian Basin elsewhere. Those properties were cheap and a lot of private equity moved in and bought them up. Uh, if you live in Carswell, New Mexico and read the local press there, you'll find stories to this effect. I'm not sure I've seen them in the financial press from New York, but uh, the local people seem to know about it. And when demand recovers, all that's necessary is for the supply to recover a bit more slowly. And then the price would go up and you have a huge windfall on every barrel that you actually produce. That's what, you know, $5 a barrel. That's where $5 a gallon uh, gasoline came from. Uh, the other place is, is the same phenomenon with refinery capacity. And, you know, you know, some people say that's the issue rather than the wells. And I'm not sure which of those is true, but it's fundamentally the same story. And the release of oil from the refiner from the reserve was an effective way of, of capping that phenomenon. And that's why the price has come back down. But that's, of course, something which is limited. You know, I can't once you drain the reserve, it's not there anymore, and that's the end of it. Uh, so that's a strategy which has had and continues to have some temporary effects on those, those costs. But there, you can see that. So there's huge profits in the energy sector. You can see this in the stock prices of the energy firms. And there are very large profits elsewhere in the corporate sector, because basically what happened is that you have a whole set of prices which price structures to which people become accustomed. And then they become destabilized. And you know, you can you can raise your price and you can raise it some more. Uh, and you do until you see that there's actual resistance. And that will take some time because the the reaction of the consumer is not necessarily to cut back on the product whose price has been increased. It's to cut back on other things which are more more vulnerable, which may be, let's say, purely in the service sector, where the pricing phenomenon is just not there. So one of my students asked me the other day, how come I'm paying $6 a dozen for eggs? The, price of, the cost of producing eggs hasn't gone up uh, by that much. Uh, the demand certainly hasn't gone up. So what's What's going on here? Well, it turns out you can sell eggs for $6 a dozen. And people who have to pay the extra $3 for what they were paying last year, well, they'll do a little less of something else, or they'll just take out a little more debt than they otherwise would. So they have flexibility on this. And until you reach the limit, you're going to find people who who have that kind of capacity raising the prices, and that's that is a kind of price price spiral which is going on in the in the economy and in the wake of this initial destabilization of of habitual cost structures. Hmm. Interesting. The other thing I wanted to explore in this topic was you've written about you know obviously labor market the Fed looks at at least you know as as you said their policy. You wrote about how there really isn't a labor market. There's a set of job structures. I'm kind of curious if we could explore that a little more and what what you mean. Okay, so the notion of a labor market, which is part of the of the jargon of economics textbooks and and journalism, well, that evokes a 
supply and demand mechanism in which, and in a supply and demand mechanism, the adjustment is in the price, which in this case is the wage. None of that goes on in the real world, except at the very margins. Uh, but nobody, we don't go out in the morning and ask our employers what they'll hire us for. We take on long-term commitments. And that's true even for people who are nominally being paid on an hourly basis. They show up one day and they're expected to show up the next day. And that relationships exist. So I think that the appropriate, this is an institutional structure, not a market in which there's any meaning, any serious meaningful adjustment of the price in order to get you to a balance of people who want to work and employers who want to hire people. So the whole notion, which is implicit here, which is that you can get to full employment by cutting wages, is a nonsense. Keynes knew it was a nonsense and he you know, the general theory is 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 you know a large part a, a, an attack on on that idea uh but the, you know then my my formulation here is that we had what you have is a job structure and not a labor market is just another way of making the same point hmm. yeah, very interesting another thing we wanted to think about you had worked with uh, Jing Chen on uh, some interesting stuff in 2011 about fixed costs. And um, you wrote that, you know, hence it is often difficult and unpopular to adopt policies that will reduce fixed costs and general such policies will not be adopted. Therefore, high fixed cost societies are prone to collapse. Uh, you also wrote that resources distributed this way may be more likely to support decentralized, smaller scale, less resource intensive economic activity. This seems pretty relevant to a society facing climate change People talk about decarbonization of the economy. I mean, do, do you, how do you see that idea that you wrote about then, how that applies to the kind of challenges we're, we're finally starting to look at today? Well, I think it, it applies in general. It's a, it's a very general principle in our work with my work with Jing Jin. We build this up from you know the basic realities of, of biological uh, structures, mechanical structures, economic structures, they're all following essentially the same principle, which is that when resources are cheap, it pays to make fixed investments, to make use of them efficiently. And then you can spread the benefits out over large numbers of, uh, of, of, of units so that you have uh, you know, basically a highly prosperous, stable society. And you can also control the external environment to a greater extent, so you face less less uncertainty. When resources become expensive, those systems tend to go into deficit. They tend to go into into economic losses. So they, first of all, they will, will tend to break, uh, and secondly, they will not tend to be renewed. And that really does suggest that when you you know, if we're facing, if we are in fact facing uh, a pair, uh, you know, a new world in which uh, prime resource costs are, are much higher, this is going to have very fundamental effects. Uh, it's going to be very difficult to maintain the previously existing, um, uh, you know, fixed structures uh, that we, I mean, you just think about the, think about the effect on the airlines, for example, you have large numbers of airplanes, <laughs> that infrastructure, well, if they can't run them profitably, they won't run them at all. 
and the whole the whole body of uh, of economic activity begins to go away. Or you think about what's happening in Europe now with diminution of of natural gas supplies, which are a major source of low cost, high quality energy. Well, without the natural gas, then many things: the pharmaceuticals, the steel industry, the, the fertilizer industry. Many things are running into profitability problems, and in, also including food production. Bakeries, for example, if they can't sell their their products profitably, then they shut down, and then you have an interruption of the food chain. So these kinds of things can be quite serious in terms of of their of their impact on a society which is built up on the basis of a particular set of resource delivery mechanisms, a particular set of assumptions about what resources cost. This this idea is very familiar in in classical in the the 18th century, 19th century, totally familiar set of ideas, but they got wiped out of uh, of 20th century economics by this very shallow notion of production functions and timeless equilibria, which is what what, what people are raised in, in the textbooks right now. And that's that's a serious problem because the economists think that there's lots of substitution possibilities, which are in fact not there, at least not there in the short run. So switching gears a little bit to institutional economics, in your 2013 presidential address to the Association for Evolutionary Economics, you wrote that there were three things institutionalists kind of needed to work on. They needed to work on uh, working with physics and engineering, working with those who study law and avoiding empty debates about markets, and three, emphasizing the importance of the stabilizing role of social insurance. Um, do you think we've made progress on any of these areas? Well, there are people who, who I admire who are working along these lines. So I think I could I could name a number of them for you. I think, uh, though, in general, this is still pretty much an uphill struggle. I, let me give you one one example that I was just working on on in, you know, in the last few days on some new manuscript that that Jing Chen and I are preparing. Let me talk a little bit about this notion of complexity, which is a part of something called the Santa Fe School, uh, which attempts to bring groups of physicists and neoclassical economists together. And their idea is that there are complicated structures that are that emerge from uh, essentially self-organization. Well. It's not true. It's not true in real life. And mineral crystals can develop that way, but those are not life structures. Life structures grow according to plants, right? The, the, the ant, uh, biological entities have genes. This is a plan. Uh, and as a result, we're, we reproduce ourselves in ways which are, generally, I mean, they vary over time, but they're generally recognizable from one iteration to the next. And this in human societies is the function of laws, institutions, habits, regulations. And so you know, the argument I would make is that you really can't have an advanced economy. You can't have anything more than the simplest kind of economy without a complicated structure of laws and regulations, plans. And those are, this is very much not the way in which young economists are trained to think. They're trained to think of the market as being essentially self-regulating. And then there are things like externalities and public goods and other sort of add-ons that you get in chapter 12 of the text. It's sort of the last week or two of the the term. Uh, And those tend to justify some level of government intervention in the market. And the general presumption is the less government intervention, the more perfect the market. Well, this is simply 
completely contrary to the every every advanced act economic activity that we that we live in. Uh, even driving down the street, we were subject to all kinds of regulations, which, if they're reasonable, we find it very convenient to obey them. We stop at red lights and stop signs and so forth and minimize traffic accidents. And if we go someplace where those rules are not respected, we we, we're, we consider that we're in considerably greater danger, and we are. Similarly, we go to the grocery store, we expect the vegetables and the lettuce and so forth to be reasonably clean. And if we're don't trust the regulations, we have to take a lot more precautions when we get them back to the kitchen. And so that's an extra cost that we have to pay. And you just go, would you get on an airplane if you didn't think the air traffic controllers were regulating the the flight of the plane? No, you wouldn't. So there wouldn't be an airline industry. So you can't come up with an example, even beyond the most primitive thing out there uh, that isn't subject to a fairly comprehensive regulation in order to exist in the first place. And thinking about this in a sensible way that makes you, makes you into a very different kind of economist than, uh, uh, than, than, than you know, let's just say, the, the textbook model of one. Mm-hmm. Even with the growth of environmental economics, uh, you don't think that over the last 10 years there's been um, a growth in an institutional awareness in the field? You think it's gotten worse? Oh, uh, I, you know, I, I I'm constantly told that the you know the mainstream is adapting to uh, to to new problems, and then a new set of problems come up, and they just as clueless as they were before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, my, my I, I have uh, a deep skepticism about that, that you know that that line, which one you know, the uh, the uh, of course the great example of this was the financial crisis in two thousand eight, which was an event that occurred just as the American Economic Association was scheduling sessions on the on how macroeconomics came to consensus on monetary policy, just as the notion of a great moderation was a permanent feature of life uh, had taken hold, just as the mainstream economists who then was running the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, was, 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 was saying that, uh, that there was no, no issue in the housing market that couldn't be con- controlled. Okay. I mean, at a certain point, one has to say, look, I mean, let's be serious. We need a completely different approach. There were a few people who spoke, who saw what was coming and said so reasonably accurately. And uh, because they said they were, that because of that, they were, they were completely marginalized. They, and, and to this, to this day, so far as I'm aware, nobody who gave a reason what appears in retrospect to have been a reasonable analysis of the you know coming crisis and has was hired to a mainstream economics department not nobody did they even hold seminars on the subject very few certainly um, my colleagues in here in Texas didn't hold a single seminar that I'm aware of on this for years uh, and you know, now uh, the Nobel Committee had just anointed three people of my generation as having figured this all out back in 1983 well <laughs> if that's the case it was one of the least these were the least read and least influential papers in the history of the field <laughs> because <laughs> 2008 came along and they had absolutely no clue about what was happening what was going on. I just had to ask because I haven't been on the field for 10 years yet. So it seems yeah. seems like a lot <laughs> yeah, yeah. that we missed out on. 
Let me ask a follow-up. So do you think we've talked about job structure versus labor market? We've talked about how financial regulation, 2008, we've also talked about, I mean, are these the kind of things that younger institutional economists should be thinking about? Because they're not, like you said, they're not going to learn this in Econ 101 or even Econ 801 for that matter. But are these the kind of things that AFEE should be thinking about are these examples, would you say? Sure. I think there's plenty of intellectual tradition that institutionally oriented economists can focus their attention on. To begin with, if one reads Veblen and Commons and others, and you're dealing with, and my father for that matter, you're dealing with an understanding that there are structures, uh, social structures uh, that are, that this is an ecology that one needs to have a sense of. Uh, But beyond that, Veblen uh, was taking his cues from then relatively new science of anthropology. He was taking his cues from, from the rise of evolutionary thinking. There, Keynes was taking cues from Einstein, from uh, relativity. If you think about things in physical or biological terms, there's no reason why you can't develop a coherent body of thought, which is the foundation of a solid way of thinking about economic issues as well. That seems to me to be the, the, the path forward. The problem here is an institutional problem, which is that economics departments are really caught in where do they get their their intellectual foundations? They get them from the 18th century. They get them from you know, they go to back to to the pre-evolutionary uh, viewpoint, and you have a it's essentially intelligent design, deism, Adam Smith's invisible hand metaphor. Uh, this is about balance and equilibrium. A little bit of of, of Newtonian mechanics here built into the, this from the mathematical sense of the 19th century. But this is all about uh, you know the principle of least action and so forth. And they're drawing on physical metaphors, which are physical and theological metaphors which are no longer the foundation of, of, of scientific thought in any aspect, except that, you know, it was really appro- you know, the approximations that one can still use to a certain degree, but uh, in you know, mechanics. But it's certainly no complex system is modeled by any scientific process in that way. Um, so until e- e- economists can shake this off, which means until they're really replaced by a different group of people, which is a job for universities, which need to be restructured, then they're, they're going to reproduce themselves in this rather disappointing fashion. Interesting. We did want to talk about your father. Uh, I know you've written about him many times and been to events and so forth. We're obviously as close to us as an agricultural economist, and I know he grew up in southern Ontario, not too far from here. One statement you said was, um, Gabriel's heresies triumphed in the open market within the university. They were repressed by the method on which he literally wrote the book. And since we just talked a little bit about this, can we go a little further on this idea of, um, of how, when you wrote about that? Well, okay. What were, what were my, my father's heresies? Uh, I think that to begin with, it they had to do with the role played by large organizations in, in economic life. I mean, he certainly started out in, in agriculture, but by the late 1930s, his interests had shifted substantially to industrial structures. And that was what he had to deal with as a you know, as the deputy director for prices of the Office of Price Administration uh, during the war. And then later at 
fortune. He had a sort of intimate understanding of corporate life in America. So these were the, these were the the institutions that he was that he was concerned with, and the environment, government unions, and so forth, which they in which they operated, particularly at that time. And um, what did the university do? The university basically placed those issues and those concerns outside of the sphere of, of academic economics. So, okay, we're, we're going to ideal type is the perfectly competitive model, and anything else, the real world is a series of imperfections. You know, this is a on the face of it, an absurd way to proceed. Uh, it's a. Uh, it's fair to say that nobody in who operates in politics or in, or, or for that matter, at the helm of a big business, is is operating out of uh, out of the textbook economics. This is this is uh, thinking for children and, and academics. It's not thinking about the real world. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Also, th- you know, we talked a little bit about Veblen, but I would I wanted to explore a little more. Do you think there's anything we should be learning from Veblen uh, as the founder of institutional economics that maybe you have learned from him that maybe isn't being captured nowadays? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I go back to I, mean, I find great pleasure in, in going back to to read Veblen and to have my students read him. They um, and so I'll, 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 I mean there's the, the richness of um, of Veblen is really hard for a modern mind to fathom. I, my father said he was the last man who knew everything. <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, but there are two things which continually I think catch the attention of uh, new generations of students. One is the Veblen's clear understanding that underpinning the class structure was the gender. Divide that this was you had when this, to read the theory of the leisure class, and what is under underlies that is uh, the, the the leisure class, which is the group of people who are concerned with relative status and you know climbing the greasy pole. Uh, that is to say, the soldiers, the government officials, the professors, the business leaders. These are all boys, uh, and the people who for whom toil and labor and production are their fundamental concerns. The people who work in the fields and the people who who organize uh, the households, these are women. So that underpinning the, the question of uh, and, and his inversion of what really is valuable from the common social uh, description of it, his notion of the higher barbarians and so forth, is uh, this, this sort of proto-feminism, which I find is it catches the attention of my students of both <laughs> both genders in a very uh, in a very compelling way. So that's one thing. And the second thing I've mentioned is particularly in the theory of the business enterprise, where Fablin writes about the discipline of the machine. And this is is closely related to the this previous point. Ask what is is it about the machine system about industry that what does it do to the people who work with machines? And up to that point, and particularly if you read Marx, I mean the the, the, the notion is that that this you know almost imbecilizing, if that's a word, it's a, it, it's a, a certainly a, a an activity which degrades people. That's not Fablin's idea. Fablin's idea is that the machine culture instills a scientific mindset, cause and effect, the ability to sort of precise 
do something here and, and the following thing will result. And this is quite different from agricultural activity where you're working with you know uncertain biological phenomenon, the changes of the weather and so forth, uh, which require a different kind of knowledge, but a different they, they put you in contact with with mysterious, invisible, theologically derived forces. Um, machine culture is science. And so he sees the the industry as having given rise, the industrial age as having given rise uh, to a class of people whose outlook was fundamentally scientific. Well, then we think a little bit about what's happened in the United States in the last 40 years, where we've gone through deindustrialization, where the this this class of people has largely uh, disappeared, but at least it's superannuated by now. And the young people are brought up on computers. Uh, they're in, in an information environment, but they're not being asked to do anything that requires the discipline of the machine. And those disciplines exist where machines still rule the roost, which is largely these days in Asia. And you have a class of people there. That's where we recruit our universities, recruit our engineers and so forth from, from Korea and China. Uh, and uh, so, so we are looking at a shift in the locus of this kind of thinking in the world in a way which seems to me is very, very nicely illuminated by that one's uh, arguments. So those are, I mean, there are many things in that one, but those two things kind of come to mind immediately as, as ways in which one can translate his turn of the 20th century writing into uh, you know, the turn of the, or the you know, early 21st century that we live in now. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. great. Very interesting. So thinking about rising economic theories, modern monetary theories uh, enjoyed quite a growth in popularity, even among institutionalists. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I'm a great friend of the modern monetary theory group. This is a younger group. They're very what they do is very similar to the to the monetary economics that I encountered uh, at the University of Cambridge in the middle 1970s. I was there for a year at a time when the original Keynesians were still some of them were still there. And so, if, what the MMT group is really about, it seems to me, is making those ideas uh, accessible. Uh, to a very large audience. And they've done really remarkable work that way. They have a good sense of pedagogy, of metaphor, of, of ways of explaining what money is, who controls it, how it's uh, how it functions, what gives it value. So they've done a good job of illuminating and de-obfuscating monetary systems. Um, and this is a big threat to textbook economics, which is stuck in a set of uh, of descriptions of money, which are patently false, uh, patently, uh, you know, not just simplified, but false, actively false and misleading uh, and rest, rest on, you know, ideas, again, late 19th century ideas that have hardly been, been uh, re- renovated. Uh, so uh, we have a wonderful situation in which, the, the, as often happens, the fresh ideas are coming from people who, uh, uh, you know, if they have many of them do have academic appointments, not all, but they tend to be in state universities, liberal arts colleges, and they're they're knit together by through the internet and through, uh, you know, their various ways of linking, which weren't available in our in my generation at least. And so then the question becomes, uh, why aren't these ideas on the curriculum? 
at yeah. Harvard, Yale, <laughs> Princeton, MIT, Stanford, et cetera, et cetera. Horrors. If you did that, first of all, you would have to teach things that you aren't that you weren't brought up that weren't in your own textbooks. Secondly, even worse, you'd have to start going out and asking who can we hire who can teach this, who actually has an understanding of and has contributed to it, which is the ordinary way in which you know scientific ideas make progress is that you actually give people who have those ideas, you know, some standing in which to advance them. Can't have that. And so they, you know, the people from Ken Rogoff, Larry Summers, Lincoln go naming uh, the, the, the pangen drums of mainstream economics. They put an awful lot of effort into spitting on the, the, the MNT group, which, of course, only raises their prestige because people can see that, that this is uh, you know, something that makes these high priests and modern mainstream economics very, very uncomfortable. So I, 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 I'm not myself, uh, I was a little from a slightly earlier generation and I went off and did other things while, while this idea was developing, but they, these people are my friends. I support them. And I do find that the, that they, uh, they've done a wonderful job of, of putting some insecure mainstream economists on their back foot, uh, which is, which is an accomplishment that needs to be celebrated whenever it happens. Mm-hmm. I did want to ask a question about inequality. I know you've done a lot of work on that, especially empirical work. And then, you know, we had Piketty's book and other things. But I, where do we stand on inequality today? Do you think President Biden is moving us in a direction to help address that? And are you optimistic or pessimistic that inequality can be can we start to address it in the 2020s? So you're, you're, you're asking whether the real president of the United States, whose name is Jerome Powell, uh, is uh, moving us in the right direction. I think that the answer to that is no. Uh, the, the Federal Reserve has considerable control over and influence over the inequality in the society. Uh, and it moving to, to concentrate wealth in the hands of the wealthy and uh, recessions and these periods are when money runs uphill. And, uh, uh, this is uh, very much, and you can tell actually uh, from the way in which President Powell, excuse me, Chairman Powell uh, uh, speaks. Uh, what is he concerned about? He's concerned about the tight labor market. He's concerned about the hot labor, the hot economy. What hot economy? What labor market? What tight labor market? This All this language tells you uh, that these guys are being are reacting to pressure that's coming from the financial communities, coming from conservatives, uh, and it's aimed at preventing working people from having any leverage uh, in in uh, catching up to um, to the to the rise of prices, uh, keeping their being a, being able to have confidence that they can keep their jobs over the long term. Uh, it's aimed at, at, at increasing the insecurity in the society. So it's aimed not only at increasing inequality. And here I, I draw a distinction, which uh, is really, I think, important. Been, the person has been calling attention to it as a social critic uh, philosopher named Elbena Asmanova, who's written a very good book called Capitalism on Edge. And the concept that she really uh, hammers is, is precarity. It's not just a question of what your income is at any given moment or what it is in relation to, to the capital gains being earned by 
tech firms and so forth. But how secure are you and how confident are you that you'll have healthcare retirement, that you can educate your children, that you can keep your house? This is what the use of high interest rate policy as the driving as the leading edge of economic policy. This is what it gets at. This is why people become, um, even if they have jobs, which by and large at the moment they do, this is what makes them makes them anxious and it makes them, uh, alienates them from, from the, an administration, in this case, the Biden administration. So that's what we're seeing. And, you know, there, of course, people are not wrong about this. Uh, it's why did Joe Biden reappoint a Republican nominee to be the Republican chair of the Federal Reserve. Well, you know, he did a nice, you know, you can credit him for for, for his performance under a Republican president, but excuse me, is there some kind of uh, veil under that people take and they go into a, the monastery or the nunnery when they go on the Federal Reserve and forget who they're, you know, who appointed them and who their real political masters are? I'm sorry. It's not the case. Central bankers are political people. Uh, and there's a lot of experience. In fact, you can show this statistically, and we have done so, uh, that uh, you know, uh, central bankers appointed by Republicans are kinder uh, when Republicans are in the White House than when Democrats are in the White House. It's a very consistent statistical pattern, actually. Uh, and you can see it at work right now. You know, what's going on? Well, they've come under strong pressure from conservative circles uh, to react when a Democrat is sitting in the White House. But when a Republican is in the White House, well, maybe that pressure isn't so strong. Uh, maybe their own instincts are more protective. Uh, so, you know, in fact, it's, it's a political institution uh, and uh, it, it, it benefits from uh, a, a lot of smoke and mirrors, particularly smoke and obfuscation of that fact and by the press. Uh, and again, and by our own own instincts, I'll come back to your initial comment, which was it's a question about the Fed fighting inflation, which I immediately dispute. It is the Fed. The Fed is raising interest rates. Uh, and we can talk about why it's raising interest rates, but we have to ask that question. We can't assume it's because they're, they they see something happening to the price level. What they are doing, I think, is protecting the banks, protecting the position of the dollar uh, in the world markets, that to some degree exporting price pressures to Europe and Latin America and other places, because when the dollar goes up, that's what happens. Uh, but they're fundamentally, the Fed works for the banking system. The banking system is what justifies its existence, and uh, their motives are the motives of the central bank. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. That's very interesting. Let's end with the idea of the predator state. I wanted to explore this idea. Where do we stand on this idea today? I think it's a really fascinating concept. So can we think a little bit? We've we've seen others write about the predator cities, for example, but I'm, I'm curious about your idea of the predator state, what it means and how it plays out today. Well, this was um, a book that was motivated. I started writing it uh, when Hurricane Katrina uh, devastated the city of New Orleans in 2005. Uh, and this was a kind of epiphany about the nature of, of American politics in general. We have a large system of, uh, you know, so, of social insurance. And comes from the New Deal, the Great Society. I'm not one to say the United States does not have a welfare state. 
the United States does have a welfare state, and in some respects, it has a public sector that is more robust than much of what presently exists in Europe, because Europe has been neoliberalized uh, under the European Union for 30, 40 years, including by the European Central Bank, which is a very neoliberal institution compared to the Federal Reserve. So what is going on in American politics is often a, it's, it's not a pressure to, shall we say, to regulate or to strengthen the, the welfare state. It's using the institutions of the welfare state to shave off uh, particular some benefits to go to specific private interests and get uh, you know I, somebody it was I think Walter Russell Mead many years ago when we were on friendly terms uh, we're talking about the proposals to privatize Social Security and he said this was you know his metaphor was this was the Mississippi of cash flows so what was going on here and he was someone who was familiar with the uh, um, uh, with the financial, you know, th- the thinking of financial f- sector types at the time was that they wanted some of that cash flow. They diverted into private uh, uh, funds, which they would then manage and, and shave off a little bit, not just a little bit from a personal standpoint, an enormous amount for themselves. And that's what the predator state is about. It's about that that process where you have we have robust public institutions that can, in fact, be managed by people who are being paid like civil servants. Uh, and then some, you know, someone comes along and says, no, let me manage it, and I'll be paid like a corporate CEO or like a hedge fund manager. Uh, and that's very, very good. And most people don't notice because it's just shaving a little tiny bit off of a, off of a, a large uh, public benefit. But it then creates, in some sense, a, a, a kind of oligarchy, which is as I see, predatory on the public welfare. So that was that was my idea of the predator state. And the subtitle of the book uh, was "How Conservatives Abandoned the Free Market and Why Liberals Should Too." Um, and I was I was motivated in that sense by the kind of uh, of schmaltzy rhetoric that was coming out that still comes out of out of ostensibly democratic, liberal democratic campaigns. Obama's campaign in 2008 was an example of this. Elizabeth Warren's uh, was another one uh, where they say, oh, gee, I'm a capitalist. I'm in favor of the free market. I, you know, Bill Clinton's the era of big government is over all of this stuff uh, where they're afraid to defend the things that are most important to the safety and security of the American public. Uh, and they want to show how really they really, really love the free market. Um, well, you know what they're saying is we want some of the campaign contributions that are that come from the predator class. Great. I, I mean, my view is that's a, that's something that people should be just disdainful of, really. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, no, thank you. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much again, Professor James Galbraith from the University of Texas, former president of the Association for Evolutionary Economics and winner of the Veblen Commons Award. So thank you again for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Are we, are we done already? I'm disappointed. I was hoping. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>